Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's December 14th, 2020. The virtual winter meetings are over, and the Chicago White Sox came away with Lance Lynn and Adam Eaton, but they are not done yet this offseason. So, what will be their next move? To help get us started on this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, let's catch up on the latest rumors concerning the Chicago White Sox and around Major League Baseball from our guest. He's an MLB insider and columnist from Fansided, and a first time on the Sox Machine Podcast, it's Robert Murray. And hello, Robert. Thanks for joining us on the Sox Machine Podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Let's get started on the moves that have happened. Uh, we are recording this just a couple a couple of hours after Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic reported that former Chicago White Sox catcher James McCann is signing with the New York Mets. It's going to be a deal for four years, 40 plus million dollars. So well done, James, on getting a significant pay boost and that's starting catcher money. Robert, from everything that you were hearing about teams pursuing James McCann, I know that the Angels were very interested in McCann. Are you surprised on how large the reported contract will be? Uh, not really, honestly. Like Entering the offseason, I thought maybe you'd get two or three years, but as like, the offseason got underway and everything, it seemed pretty clear that he was going to end up landing a four-year deal. And when it was all said and done, he was choosing between four-year offers between the Angels and the Mets. And the Mets were ended up coming in with the most money. Um, but he clearly has established himself as one of the game's better catchers in the last 18 months or so. Um, and he really broke out. And uh, when the White Sox went out and signed Yasmina Grandal, it was pretty clear that he wasn't going to end up coming back once his contract was up. And um, the Mets really 
came in hard after them. And last week or late last week, it looked like they were going to end up closing a deal, but things really kind of just stalled. And there was a lot, there were a little more hurdles than anticipated, but it took about a week or so, but they finally cleared them. And I'm sure the Angels complicated things as far as being this uh, outside contender. But now with McCann going to the New York Mets, how do you think this signing impacts JT Real Muto's market? Because so many thought, well, this is a no-brainer. Steve Cohen's bought the Mets. The Mets might as well make the Phillies weaker by signing JT Real Muto. And that doesn't appear to be the case. Yeah, I think that throws a huge wrench in everything. Just because, as you said, as soon as Steve Cohen took over the team, you'd think the Mets are going to spend a lot of money. And I mean, they ended up doing so on Trevor May and, and uh, James McCann, but it really impacts the market for a guy like Real Muto, because I think that was a, that was the team that his agency really had circled as the team that was going to give him the most money. And with them not involved, perhaps he doesn't get the deal that he was seeking originally. Um, I'm very curious to see w- what his market looks like. It doesn't sound like he's going to sign any time in the near future. Um, but the interest league-wide, at least from every indication that I've gotten, is strong. I just don't know what team is going to end up giving him the deal that he's ultimately been seeking, which is well north of what Yasmina Grandal got from the, from the White Sox. And I can understand why Rio Muto asking price is that high. With the Phillies now hiring Dave Dombrowski to take over the team for the next four seasons, is there a possibility the Phillies change their mind and bring Rio Muto back? Hey, I'm not going to rule anything out on that front. I think the Phillies would like to have him back, and I know Bryce Harper has made it very clear that he wants Rio Muto to be back, and he's done so publicly pretty pretty often, especially early on in the offseason. I think the odds still remain in, in favor of Real Moto playing elsewhere next year, just because the, the Phillies really want to build a sustainable winner, and they may not be able to. To there's there's going to be other pieces in place that they're going to want to do before committing well over twenty million a year uh, to a guy like Real Muto. So while I, I'm not going to rule anything out, because especially since David Dombrowski is one of the most aggressive general managers or executives in all of baseball. Um, it would not be smart of me to rule it out, but I think the odds still remain in favor of him playing outside of Philadelphia next year. All right, so with James McCann making the news this past weekend in Major League Baseball, he now becomes an old friend of the Chicago White Sox. Let's move over to the Chicago White Sox. They have made two moves during the virtual winter meetings, uh, whatever that ended up being, other than a bunch of Zoom meetings (laughs) with GMs. Um, But the White Sox, they kind of stole the headlines as far as the virtual winter meetings by trading for Lance Lynn and signing Adam Eaton. You know, Robert, we have the Lance Lynn trade a big thumbs up from a Sox machine perspective because Mm -hmm. we thought the White Sox needed a frontline starter. And we think Lynn can still be that, especially how successful he's been in 2019 and 2020. How do you feel about the White Sox trading for Lynn and the cost it came with Dane Dunning? Yeah, I thought the deal made a lot of sense for them just because they really, as you said, they needed a frontline starter to put at number two right behind Lucas Giolito. And uh, and I thought that was a guy that was perfect for them just because also the White Sox need some bullpen help. And what Lynn does is he he eats innings, and he's done so pretty consistently ever since he went over to Texas. Um, I thought that the, the trade made a lot of sense for them, and it also comes pretty cheap. 
Um, and I, the price, I mean, I like Dane Dunning. Don't get me wrong, but I thought parting with him and acquiring Lynn and getting that stability in the rotation was a really smart move for Rick Hahn. And it also gives them some flexibility to address other needs on a team. As I said, the bullpen is especially one that they're going to target. Um, so while it filled a huge need for them, they also maintain that flexibility. And I think that's a huge key for them going forward. Do you know of any other teams were inquiring on Lynn? Cause I'm wondering how heavy the competition was for the white Sox to acquire Lynn, or if they made a smart move by jumping in front of the market to acquire Lynn while other teams were still pursuing Trevor Bauer. Cause I have to imagine if Lynn were still with the Texas Rangers, whatever team missed out on Trevor Bauer would quickly call Texas to get Lynn, but that possibility doesn't exist now for the rest of the league. Yeah. And I think that's exactly right. And there was other interest in, in Lance Lynn. The Padres were one team that were, they were interested in they were, their interest dates back to the trade deadline. But I don't like Ken Rosenthal ended up reporting that um, the reason Lynn wasn't traded at the deadline was because if he was traded to a team he he wouldn't or he didn't prefer he would have sat out for the rest of the year. So that's why he wasn't traded at the deadline, and uh, that interest continued during this off season. And um, I think the White Sox were smart to be aggressive on that front because uh, as soon as a guy like Trevor Bauer signs, I think the price for a guy like Lance Lynn will go up. So that was it was smart for Rick Hahn to be aggressive and, and address that need like like he did and um yeah like it's that for me i think was one of the smarter and more underrated moves of the off season i think period um uh, that it just made a ton of sense and and rick Hahn has, has always been aggressive and, and you never really know what he's up to until he's done it at the last second but lynn was kind of one that you could see coming but i just didn't expect it to get done perhaps so soon well, let's talk about the other aggressive move, a move that we do not consider highly uh, from Sox Machine, and that is the signing of Adam Eaton. We're, we're, we're not thrilled because from this perspective, the White Sox are jumping out in front of the corner outfield market, and from Han's comments, it seems that they are con- content settling for Eaton uh, while we feel like there are better options available right now in free agency. There have been reports that the White Sox were or maybe are interested in Michael Brantley, but his asking price might be cost prohibitive for what Rick Hahn is trying to attempt to do this offseason, making multiple moves to round out the roster. That sounds like Hahn is on a tight budget from Jerry Reinsdorf. Looking at Michael Brantley, do you have a sense of what Michael Michael Brantley's market is currently? Yeah, his market is pretty strong and a couple of the teams that are in are two of the more aggressive in terms of spending and that's the Yankees and the Blue Jays and the Blue Jays are seemingly in on everybody but I'm with you on the thoughts on the Adam Eaton signing I didn't totally understand that one I understand the fact that 8 to 8.5 million in that range is not exactly like the biggest commitment in the world and it, it gives them the flexibility which is something that i've said multiple times on here but that's something they really want this offseason is flexibility um but i thought they could have done that in a different way and eaton's history with the white Sox is not exactly the greatest uh to say the least and the fact that they had to consult veterans on the team that played with him um i thought they under it, it showed that they understood the risk but they ended up getting the green light on it and he's a talented player, don't get me wrong, but I would have rather have signed a guy like Brantley uh, for a few million more, and it probably would end up taking a few more years to get a deal done too. Um, but signing a guy like Eaton, I think, is another play 
or is another thing that allows them to do other moves. And I know um, one of them that they might want to do is sign Liam Hendricks. I think that's next on their radar. Um, but just I would have done it in a different way than Eaton. I, I maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I could be totally off on this, but I, I would have gone in a different direction about the White Sox. Well, I think for the White Sox fan base, a, a a popular choice for corner outfield was Jock Peterson. And I thought the White Sox, Robert, would go after Peterson because of the rumored interest over the years in him. It's I think there's at least twice that I thought there were strong trade rumors that maybe a deal was close to being done and didn't get completed. I think Han once alluded to the fact that a tweet ruined the trade, which I still kind of find funny. I don't think that's what ended up happening. But but with Jock Peterson, again, the White Sox signed Adam Ean now, and he's going to be platooning in right field with Adam Engel. Do you get a sense of what Peterson's market is? Because as soon as he signs Robert, naturally all of the White Sox fan base is going to be comparing what Peterson signed for compared to Adam Eaton. Yeah, and I think what the Eaton signing is going to do is it's going to end up driving the price up for a guy like Jock Peterson. And going into the offseason, I thought MLB trade rumors is pretty right. I believe they're accurate, or their uh, their projection for, for Peterson was two years for $18 million. But I could see Eaton's price driving that to about maybe two years to 24 in that range, maybe a little bit less. Um, so I, I think there's going to end up being a few teams that are in on that, and I know one of them that really likes him is the Cardinals. I think that's a team that makes a ton of sense for, for him because they're really looking to upgrade the off field and, and get a, a power bat next to Paul Goldschmidt in the lineup. And I know that last year for Peterson was, was not good, but he's had a f- few seasons of 25 plus homers. And there was even one of them that was close to about 35. So he's got a legit power bat. I thought he would have been a perfect fit, as you said, for the White Sox, but maybe the price was too high for their liking. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the reasoning is behind um, going Eaton over Peterson, but it, it, I, I would have done Peterson over Eaton. If the price was right, I think that was a clear move, and I think this also kind of shows that the Peterson market is going to be more lucrative than, than originally thought. Well, if Jack Peterson gets a pay raise, he can send a Christmas card to Adam Eaton next year thanking him <laughs> for raising his Oh, absolutely. Value. That's going to be his first order of business. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh you alluded to this, but you know the next topic is the next targets for the Chicago White Sox. And you mentioned as far as the flexibility, and Rick Hahn has mentioned this multiple times in his press conference as well. You know the White Sox adding Lynn and Eaton. It's roughly about seventeen million dollars that they've added to their payroll, and based on arbitration estimates and also including the pay increases for the twenty-six man roster. The White Sox are looking at $114 million right now with their payroll currently. And uh, we were estimating that maybe the budget this year, considering the pandemic, wouldn't exceed what the White Sox were projected for 2020. We were thinking maybe the budget would be $135 million. And I bring this up because looking for next possible targets, you mentioned Liam Hendricks. If Raycon has 20 to $25 million left to spend this offseason – does Liam Hendricks still make sense with that line of thinking for the White Sox to bring in and become their new closer, replacing Alex Colomay? I, I believe he does make sense, and I think that's what their first two moves had in mind, is having the flexibility to sign a guy like Liam Hendricks. And, and you mentioned Alex Colomay. He was, he's, he's a very good closer. He's, he was very good for them, but 
adding a guy like Hendricks would be a game changer in the ninth thing. And I think if you can add him, and I think it's going to end up taking a four-year deal to get it done, if you can add him to the back end of the bullpen, I think that's going to end up being a move that puts their bullpen over the top because the A's bullpen in the last couple of years has not been very good. But the guy that's kept it together has been Hendricks in the, in the ninth inning, and he's been a rock star. Uh, maybe they could end up – like I, I think – their their next their only big move I think that they have coming, or I shouldn't say their only big move, but um, I think a big move that makes sense for them would end up being Hendricks because, as you said, possible twenty to twenty five million left to spend would also allow them to sign perhaps another starting pitcher. Um, but if you have a guy like Hendricks on your radar and you can add him at a deal that you're comfortable with and you have the the financial flexibility to do so, I think you have to do it just because he's a guy that when it comes to playoff time having him is basically like it's, it's a lock or a near lock that he's going to close in the game out. And he just makes a ton of sense. And the interest in him league league wide is, is strong. Like it's really strong and rightfully. So I think the team that is going to provide them the biggest competition is going to end up being the blue Jays. And, <laughs> and they appear to have unlimited money. Like they're, I said it before, but they're seemingly in on everybody. Like if you're a free agent, and you haven't heard from the Toronto Blue Jays, I think you have a reason to be concerned. Um, it's just, it's, uh, it's pretty remarkable because every, everywhere you turn, you basically hear, yeah, the Blue Jays are on the sky. But yeah, the White Sox, they, they make a ton of sense for Hendricks. You mentioned four years probably going to be needed to get a deal done with Hendricks. There are a lot of folks suggesting a deal similar to what Will Smith signed last year with the Atlanta Braves. That was a three-year, $40 million deal. So it's sounding like that Hendricks is going to beat out what Will Smith signed last year with the Atlanta Braves. That's my guess, yeah. And I think for more per year as well. That's that's me speculating, but I could end up seeing this being about $14 million a year or somewhere in that range. Okay, so four years, $56 million for Liam Hendricks. Uh, that that would be a big deal. That would be their big de- <laughs> big signing uh, this offseason. After Liam Hendricks, you mentioned as far as starting pitching, and I think starting pitching is where it gets hazy. Unlike last year, where we had the several different tiers of starting pitchers available in free agency, Robert. Uh, it's Trevor Bauer... And then everybody else, I feel like, in free agency. And everybody else has got red flags. There's injury concerns. There's performance concerns. And we're looking at one- to two-year deals uh, for the rest of the free agent starting pitching class. Who is drumming up the most interest right now in the starting pitching market outside of Trevor Bauer? Yeah, that's something I've been trying to figure out is because the market really kind of took a hit when Marcus Stroman and Kevin Gossman took the qualifying offer. Right. And it's basically created this this tier where it's been Trevor Bauer as the number one guy. And I honestly, I, I don't know exactly who the White Sox would target in this scenario. I don't think it would be anybody too big. Um, but I think this market is going to end up being really, it's going to be drawn out. And as soon as Bauer signs, I think it's just going to go bananas. And I don't want to give you a name because I truly do not know exactly who the White Sox would target um, for a starting pitcher. Um, it's just, I, I think having that insurance policy for the young guys um, would end up being pretty, like, it would be a nice luxury to have if, if you're able to do it at a, at a price that makes sense. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, 
the Bauer thing is just going to hold up the market because once he goes, it's just going to end up being a floodgate. And I think the same thing can be said for Hendricks too in the reliever market because it's basically at a standstill right now. And then finally, you mentioned as far as Bauer holding up the market right now, and I feel like he's going to continue doing that because it's Trevor Bauer. But George Springer, this was also a very popular target for White Sox fans. Unfortunately, that doesn't look like it's going to come to fruition. How is Springer's market looking right now? It, it, you know, We've been hearing a lot about the Mets and the Blue Jays fighting over Springer. Are any other teams on George Springer, and is he going to be the next big free agent to sign? I, I think a lot of people um, or a lot of these teams are at least interested in, in Springer and have checked in, but the team that really is going to end up being the one to watch is the Mets. And the reason, or part of the reason why the Mets ended up going after James McCann is so they can maintain the flexibility um, to sign a guy like George Springer. And I think that's going to end up being their next target. And I wouldn't be surprised if the deal ended up getting done um, sometime in the near future. I don't know exactly the, or the exact time frame, but I think everybody in, this, in the industry views the Mets as the favorites for George Springer. That that deal is going to end up being pretty lucrative when it's all said and done. That could end up being 25 plus million a year. And rightfully so. He's the, he's the best center fielder in baseball by a pretty wide margin. Um, and he would be an, or he would end up being a game changer for the Mets because they've long needed a center fielder and he would improve their, their defense and offense quite a bit. It's going to end up being a huge blow for the Astros when he eventually leaves because it's, it basically is a foregone or foregone conclusion that he's going to leave. And I'm not exactly sure how they're, they're planning on replacing him, but if the Mets are able to get Springer, that would catapult them to a, a level that I think puts them into, into contention in the National League East. Um, and they would also want to sign another reliever and upgrade other parts of the roster. But if they can land Springer in addition to already signing McCann and Trevor May, that's a pretty good offseason for, for Sandy Alderson and, and Steve Cohen. Yeah, that definitely is. It gives the Mets a fighting chance to compete with the Atlanta Braves for the National League East. That definitely, for sure, gives them a fighting chance. And then with Trevor Bauer, any clues on which teams are most active in that market or what in the world is he asking for? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, I, I think he's asking for the moon, and rightfully so. Like, And Rich Luba, his agent, has, has done a pretty pretty good job marketing him to teams. And uh, I, don't, I don't think the Mets are going to end up being uh, serious players. I think they prefer signing a guy like Springer over Bauer. Um, I think the Blue Jays make sense because they're looking for a frontline starter. Uh, the Angels make a lot of sense too because John Heyman ended up reporting recently that people are convinced that they're going to end up spending on um, a frontline starter, and he would absolutely be that kind of player. Um, so I, I think you can make a lot of sense for them. And like you mentioned, the starting pitching market. I think a lot of the activity is actually to come by a trade. Uh, Blake Snell, um, that's a name to watch. Another one is Joe Musgrove. He was almost traded to the Blue Jays at the winter meetings, or not at the winter meetings, but uh, at the trade deadline. Um, like that was in the final stages, but they couldn't agree to the final terms and it didn't get done. Um, so I think those two names, Musgrove and Snell, are the ones to watch. Um, but Bauer, I think, if, if I'm looking at it right now, Angels, Blue Jays, Mets, maybe not in that order, but those are three teams to watch. 
Well, you're going to want to follow Robert on Twitter as things progress during this Major League Baseball offseason. After the virtual winter meetings and approaching Christmas, some players get itchy and they want to tell their families where they're going to be playing next year. Uh, so hopefully we get a little bit more activity to keep the conversation going. He is at by Robert Murray on Twitter as he shares his insight on the latest MLB rumors and transactions. You can read his excellent work on fansighted.com and Robert and at Absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for stopping by and hope to have you on again soon uh, when, knock on wood, the White Sox make another big splash this offseason. <laughs> hey, I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. Coming up next, after a word from our sponsors, Jim Margulis joins me to answer your questions on P.O. Sox. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Sox Machine, or becoming a friend of Sox Machine by supporting us on patreon.com slash socks machine and, su- and submitting your questions on our Patreon page. And Jim, the first question that we have comes from one of our loyal Patreon supporters, as in Rec. And as in Rec is asking about James McCann. And they're asking, now that James McCann is in Queens, what catcher would you pick to back up Yasmani Grandal? The good news is I don't, actually really have a strong opinion because I think, uh, you know, the White Sox are well-suited. One, with a starter who is, you know, versatile and a switch hitter and can uh, play most of the time. That's great. So don't really need a whole lot of uh, backup there. And then just also that um, there's just a wide variety of acceptable options on the free agent market. So, you know, I'm thinking back to like the first iteration of Sox Machine, uh, you're on the A.J. Pruszynski era. And getting a little bit irritated that they didn't have a better backup catcher to help AJ when he was wearing down in the, um, you know, second half of the season, like they went with Chris Widger, they rolled him over uh, year over year and didn't help. And they really didn't solve that one with Sandy Elamar. And then Toby Hall got hurt. They just, uh, was just kind of wandering in the forest a bit behind backing up AJ. And it didn't turn into a crisis because AJ was so, um, durable, but he did wear down towards the end of the years. And, um, you know, he did, uh, you know, his play did decline in some areas and it would have been nice to give him a little bit more support, but, uh, it wasn't never a crisis. It wasn't ever a crisis. So I think with Grandal, it's kind of the same thing where it's not critical as long as they pick somebody credible. And so, you know, I'm looking at like, if they want a lefty, if they value that, like Jason Castro is fine. And if they want, uh, you know, like say a framing first guy like Zunino is fine, Flowers is fine, like a general leadership um, guy who maybe brings more to the table, you know, acceptable production and, you know, has a tendency to be on winners like Kurt Suzuki is fine. Um, I think my favorite of the bunch is probably Kurt Casali, just because he seems to have like, you know, based on his, uh, you know, play and, and, and how much playing time he's gotten with the Rays and then with the Reds, 
and, and how well he's played, you know, under fairly limited situations or being blocked, that it, he might have, uh, he might be the one catcher who has maybe more to offer than he's shown so far. I think like a guy like Castro, Flowers, Zunino, they're all like either on the downsides of their careers or like Zunino is probably mid-peak, but he never really peaked. He's just kind of a glove-first guy who occasionally hits a homer. Um, you know, I, I think Caselli's the one guy who's like shown quite a bit when he gets a little bit of run. And so I wouldn't mind seeing him in a backup spot in case, you know, some, Grandal gets hurt and they need somebody to step in. You know, Grandal or Casali would be the one guy who I think would be like, I generally have expectations for him, but maybe he can offer more versus a guy like Castro is like, I hope he can produce close to what he did before. And I hope that, you know, this isn't the year he falls off completely. So I think that's why I'm a bit more aboard, uh, you know, the idea of Casali more than the others, but there are a lot of options that are fine. I think Flowers would be, I like Tyler Flowers and I liked him when he was with the White Sox. I just don't really have an interest in fighting that war again. <laughs> so I think I'm ready to move on from fending off fans or trying to explain why he has more value than he's shown or why he's, yeah. <laughs> the reasons why he's frustrating are worth putting up with for the value he adds. I, I think I, I did enough of that already to where I'm not really interested in doing all that again. Well, we could still have the debate about Zach Collins because it sounds like with Rick Khan that he has mentioned in his press conferences after the trade of Lance Lynn and the official signing of Adam Eaton that he feels somewhat comfortable with the three catchers they already have to be the backup to Yasmani Grandal with Zach Collins, Yerman Mercedes, and Sebi Zavala. And all I have to say to that, Jim, is if you go with that direction, I hope Grandal catches 130 games in 2021. That seemed like just something nice to say about uh, players who, you know, you <laughs> need to slag them. And also, like, if he's talking about with teams about trading for Collins, you know, in, in, a, in a side deal that maybe you don't want to block him right now or dismiss his abilities as a catcher right now if you're trying to sell another team on the possibility that he can remain behind the plate. But I think, you know, adding Zavala in there was maybe a bridge too far. <laughs> right. And I, I'm sure you are correct. He's not going to say, no, we need to go out and find a backup catcher to Yasmani Grandal because you're right. If he's trying to trade them, he's not going to sink their costs now. But do the White Sox have enough money to round out as far as this championship roster that Rick Khan is trying to build in 2021? Well, that goes to a couple of questions. We, we had a, quite a few questions in regards to this topic. So I'm going to pair two of them here, Jim. We had one question from two dog and two dog is asking, do we have any idea how much more Rick Hahn can spend with the 2021 payroll dollars? And Ed Casey is also asking with Bruce Levine reporting that the white Sox could add approximately 30 million in payroll this off season. Is spending on Liam Hendricks the best use of that money? If not, how would you both allocate those dollars? And to Ed's point, as far as Bruce Levine's reporting, when Bruce is reporting approximately $30 million in payroll this offseason, there's, ob- there's got to be a starting point. And we covered this with the offseason plan project, Jim. And I think your budget that you gave us with the project, $135 million, seems to be spot on, to me at least. And right now, as I had this discussion with Robert Murray in the beginning part of the show, if it is $135 million, 
I currently have the White Sox at a projected payroll of 114 million, so that leaves about 21 million left that the White Sox could spend if the 135 million dollar payroll target for the offseason plan project is actually true. So, with Two Dog and Ed asking about Liam Hendricks or maybe backup catcher or the other roster holes, how would you allocate the remaining dollars that Rick Hahn has? Uh, if they're going to take my off-season plan project as their budget, I think I'm going to set it at $203 million next year just to <laughs> see if they want to uh, to call. But, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure where the $30 million comes from. Like, if it is, like, $30 million based on, like, the payroll after, like, non-tendering Rodon and Mazzara, then maybe that's, like, 135. Like, maybe all these numbers add up to the same place, $135 million or so. If so, like, I think the one thing that, uh, I guess the one element I don't quite um, know how to account for is when they signed Adam Eaton saying that Michael Brantley was too expensive. And I, I guess I'm waiting to see if Brantley signs anywhere and what he signs for to understand, like, I guess exactly how to process their payroll and the remaining payroll. And yeah, to, to, to Ed's point about Hendricks, that's one thing that makes me a bit nervous. I've seen, you know, Hendricks been mentioned a number of times. Uh, Nightingale mentioned him. He's been mentioned by the, the food products who, a uh, rumor monger on Twitter. And uh, I like Hendricks. You know, like there, there's nothing wrong with Hendricks as the closer. Like he's, he's been awesome the last two years. It does give me slight like Billy Koch flashbacks in terms of like a heavily used Oakland closer now coming over to the White Sox and, and just losing it, um, you know, and in Koch's case, he kind of lost it mentally too. But um, in, in Hendricks's case, like he's a great closer. But, you know, if you're talking about like, um, you know, closers making, you know, 12 million or more a year for four years, and that's kind of like David Robertson money and, you know, Craig Kimbrell money, you know, Mark Melanson got that money. Um, that strikes me as like salaries who I'd rather not, add that to a team that's still trying to get to the top, you know, whether it's to the top is divisional title or deep postseason run. Like they're still trying to build towards that. And given that the roster is only going to get more expensive from here, like all the uh, young players, the cost control players, the cost going up and the ability to add, you know, theoretically closes a little bit every year that I don't know about like, you know, giving a, a closer $14 million a year or whatever, um, you know, for four years out, just because it seems like, you know, in the case of Melanson, in the case of Kimbrell, they can kind of lose it pretty quickly. And all of a sudden, you know, it's a kind of luxury that squeezes those teams. And, you know, the Rockies, I guess, had that too with the closers they signed. Um, you know, if it were like a one-year deal or two-year deal, you know, that wouldn't be an issue because you're just, you're trying to round out the 2021 payroll. But, you know, just how, you know, how they prioritize spending and, uh, spending and how like the David Robertson contract, you know, they, they added that along with Melky Cabrera and um, Adam LaRoche. And then they really couldn't spend the following winter. They, they stopped af basically after Todd Frazier and Robertson was, you know, fine with the White Sox, but they couldn't get games to him. And I think we're uh, where the White Sox are at in their stage. I'd rather see that big money going into the players who get the leads in the ninth inning before paying you know, maybe the second highest salary in the team or third highest salary in the team to the guys who are making the, uh, you know, I guess just the guys who just, you know, maybe can't factor into those wins. Um, 
I think they just have a little bit more work to do on the rotation, on the lineup, uh, reinforcing in case of setbacks, in case of health issues, carrying over like Yomakata, um, and just, you know, adding a little bit more depth to those ranks before they can, you know, I really think like spending top dollar on a closer is a good idea because that can, that can pinch teams' budgets if they're as budget conscious as the White Sox are. Yeah, and again, Robert is speculating, but he has heard that it may require four years to sign Liam Hendricks because his market is that strong. He is the top available closer, and we know that teams covet this type of reliever in free agency and even trades during the season to get their bullpen to a level that they feel confident going into the season, Jim, that they could win their division, they could make it into the postseason, and then they have dreams that a closer like Liam Hendricks is closing out a a series win, a divisional win, a championship series win, and if you're lucky, maybe closes out the World Series for you and you win the whole thing. But at your like $14 million a season, which Liam Hendricks I'm sure could possibly get as far as in this market... Yeah, four years, $14 million. That's four years, $56 million. And this is where it kind of breaks my brain a little bit on how you would say that Michael Brantley is cost prohibitive, that you wouldn't go and sign Jock Peterson to platoon in right field for you, that you had to settle for Adam Eaton. But you can go and you can commit $56 million over the next four seasons on a closer. Like, that just doesn't seem like the funds are being... I don't want to say appropriate correctly, but as far as on the positions that are most important to least important, I don't have closer that high, especially with some of the type of relievers the White Sox already have, and especially a continuing theme that you and I have been talking about now in recent years is that relievers are fickle. They may be great one year, but you don't know about the next year. And that's why maybe the smart strategy is that if you are in contention, go rebuild your bullpen on the fly with guys that are actually performing well during that season in June and July, closer to the trade deadline. I know that costs like you in the, like prospects. The Nationals. Yeah, that's what the Nationals did. Exactly. I, I know that there's a difference. That type of currency is prospect currency compared to just spending cash now. But I don't know. It, it, for me... Liam Hendricks is awesome, and he would make the White Sox better. But giving him $14 million instead of trying to find a better solution in right field, uh, it's just not going to sit well with me. I, I It would be a direction that I would not agree with, even though I do think Hendricks would make the White Sox better. It seems like the teams that can afford those contracts and not be hurt by a setback are like the teams that spend the most, like the Dodgers and the Yankees. Like they can afford to have like Kenley Jansen struggle or Roldis Chapman be on the injured list for a little bit and not really suffer because they have enough vested elsewhere, whether it's getting leads that are too big for closers to blow or just having multiple talented relievers to step in. And the White Sox just aren't that, you know, we've seen them before when they have, you know, kind of uh, aspirations for a closer in a season and the games aren't, uh, they, they don't get enough leads to that guy. And so they have to um, wait and hope that the value will show up later down the road. And then by that point, everything's too expensive for them to add the players they need to 
have those saves be really that valuable. And yeah, so it just kind of feel like David Robertson over again when Robertson was fine, just wasn't really worth it in terms of what a closer brings to a team in the position the White Sox were in. Yeah, it's your final piece of the puzzle. And let's be real, I don't know if the White Sox roster construction is there yet. Where we could say the last piece of their puzzle is closer. Like, I, no. Right field, to me, is not resolved. And we're going to have this conversation again next offseason. Like, figure out all your positions first and then address closer. And I don't, I just don't think that they're there, Jim. And the starting rotation, maybe we can have that debate about how it's a bit risky uh, to maybe pencil in Ronaldo Lopez as your number five starter at this moment. If you are set that Michael Kopech is going to start the year in AAA, maybe you need some of that cash to get another starting pitcher, perhaps on a one-year deal like you signed Gio Gonzalez, which is not cheap. It'll be one year, $7 million, which goes back to this whole budget again. If you only have 20 or $25 million left to spend this offseason, you would give more than half of that to a closer when you could still, when you still maybe need to get another starting pitcher for depth, a backup catcher, and whatever cash you got left over, you could try to figure out who you could bring in to help DH. Yeah. And I'm thinking too with Alex Colome, like he, you know, he was wobbly. Um, you know, he wasn't maybe the prettiest uh, closer we've ever seen. But when it comes to actual like converting saves, the White Sox were pretty much near the top of the league uh, or at the top of the league uh, two years ago, I think near the top of the league this year and actually seeing leads through, like just basically being great about closing out leads uh, after the eighth inning. So you're, you'd, you'd be getting a guy like Hendricks to maybe try to hold that. But, you know, as we've seen the White Sox the last two years, like when they were rebuilding, you know, still rebuilding two years ago and then, pressing uh to try to get into the you know above 500 territory and into the expanded postseason last year just like that was good but they still needed more help to get more leads uh, especially like later in the 2020 season like the last two weeks of that season like Alex Colomay could not help <laughs> so you know as they're facing a, a wider variety of opponents who are not in you know probably two central divisions that were worse than they looked entering the season um I'd still want to focus more of the energy on getting a roster that can provide more leads to save. And if they have a little bit of a setback or a step back in, in terms of their percentage closing out games, they can afford to have that little bit of regression. I just don't want to hear they sign Liam Hendricks to four years, $56 million. And then in the, the off season, sign up the 2022 season that they say, well, we don't have that much money to spend because we're up to our financial spending cap, our internal spending cap, nowhere near the luxury tax, then then I would be frustrated. And I think a lot of White Sox fans would be frustrated because you're in your contention window. You want them to continue to add to this roster to enhance it and make it the best possible roster it could be. Just I'm with you, Jim. I, I am I am concerned. I am hesitant. If your next move is Liam Hendricks, Hendricks will make the White Sox better, but we know on how this team spends its money. And if you're going to give the closer $14 million a season over the next four years, Hendricks better be awesome or this team is going to handcuff itself because its closer is has one of the largest contracts on the team. 
Yeah, it's also a little bit of tunnel vision too, just, or at least it strikes me as tunnel vision, uh, just because Hendrix did play such a big role and uh, kind of a controversial role in the wildcard series, like Bob Melvin's handling of him and struggling a lot in game two and coming back with a, a inspiring performance, a recovery in game three. But just seeing that happen right in front of the White Sox and the White Sox saying, we need this guy no matter what, that strikes me as a little bit worrisome as well. Right. So two dog and Ed, that's as far as our ideas right now with Liam Hendricks, but thank you so much for asking your questions. Our next question comes from Dr. Bo and other than Grandal, the White Sox consistently shop at the mid tier level of free agency, often to disappointing results. They spend for doubles and expect to hit home runs. Last year, they actually failed to hit many singles with Steve Ciszek, Nomar Mazzara, Gio Gonzalez. We could throw Edwin Carnacion in there too. In 2019, they hit with McCann, but whiffed on Alonzo, Jay, Herrera, and Santana. Will they ever learn? And Jim, I guess this is a an extension of the conversation we had on the possibility of citing Liam Hendricks. Is, yeah, uh, they have disappointing results oftentimes when they spend money. Yeah, and well, I'd lump in Dallas Keuchel with Grandall as well. Like that was a legit, yes, um, not top of market, but second tier signing with you know the other pitchers we liked, and they tried for Zach Wheeler. So that's a case where yeah, that's Keuchel was a a uh, I would call it problem solving money. Um, the White Sox don't often spend problem solving money, uh, and that's a case where they did, but. You know, that's, I think, uh, yeah, and we can maybe revisit this a little bit, like uh, how we feel about Adam Eaton with a little bit of time passing. And uh, ultimately, like, you know, after Eaton did his, uh, you know, media tour and, you know, tried to cite his time with the Nationals and what he learned and how he grew and everything. Just like, I'm inclined to say like, okay, the Drake LaRoche jokes still warrants them or still, you know, people can make them and, and that's fine. But just, I'm not counting on that being an issue. It's just more the old White Sox problems of um, trying, you know, as Dr. Bo said, trying to get a homer out of a double signing, or in this case, like, uh, you know, Eaton might be more of a hustle single at this point. But uh, I think the the thing with Eaton is that, um, you know, Rick Hahn, and he mentioned this before, and, and you know, I, I track this word through over the course of years, is that he values flexibility and that's something that holds value to the front office, but doesn't really hold value to fans because we've been following this going from, you know, the flexibility to sign Manny Machado to Harper. And then like, well, maybe Betts and Arenado and uh, Garrett Cole. And then oh, maybe uh, George Springer. And just like <laughs> all these, you just keep kicking uh, the can down the road with players they theoretically could sign. And at this point, they never will. Um, and, and just the White Sox fans, you know, maybe... Uh, you, know, you like the idea of like being able to solve problems later that aren't urgent now, but you know, as we've saw at the last rebuild, they just didn't solve the problem when it became urgent, and they they prized this flexibility. And yeah, you know, at this point, I think it would be better if the White Sox quartered themselves a bit on spending. Like we're spending big, hope it works because right now they they spend as if it's not going to work. Like they they have this pessimistic outlook and that they they'll have to, um, you know be able to rebound and, and redirect some of the money they previously spent on better ideas as they come along. And uh, part of it me wonders too is, you know, given that this front office was there in 2005 and they basically used that strategy in 2005, like 
AJ, Dai, El Duque, Aguchi, Hermanson, like all those signings were, uh, you know, rebounds or unknowns or just veterans who were okay and, and patched a hole. And they all basically exceeded expectations in some cases, like incredibly so. And it seems like every winter since where they've tried, this has just been like either showing how hard that was or like paying the price or like the, uh, the cosmic balance for having that be so successful is you're just going to be paying them for that for 15, 20 years, having it work out miserably. Um, but either way, it's just like, it, it seems like, you know, Han just doesn't want to have to live with his big whiffs. Like that's his priority. And the exchange for that is that White Sox fans have to live, live with like a huge collection of smaller whiffs. And that's not really satisfying. And uh, it leads to where we are now where they sign Adam Eaton and it doesn't seem like a big deal to uh, out of town people, uh, national baseball people like White Sox tourists. We're wondering what's the big deal, but uh, it, it strikes as like just the same mistake they made over again. And here's hoping there are more McCann's in store, but you know, there's a reason why McCann was so treasured to White Sox fans is because uh, he came out of nowhere to be way more than anybody thought he could. And that's just been so rare. Right, and that's not the standard, and that's what fans have to be careful of. James McCann is not the standard. He is the exception. Uh, What's been the standard signing for the White Sox and acquisitions? I don't know. Is it Nomar Mazzara? Is that we just expect this to crash and burn? That's kind of how I feel about Adam Eaton. Like, I don't feel like the right field situation is getting a lot better. I know there's a lot of people that are, you know— I, I'm not going to call them Adam Eaton stands, but they are highly encouraging to ignore the 2020 results and focus more on what happened in 2019. But in that four-year stretch with the Washington Nationals, I mean, he had one good year, two very injured years, and last year he wasn't good at all. Like negative 0.9 war, according to baseball reference, in 42 games. That's horrendous. Uh, and I think you're going to have to hope that Adam Engel uh, continues on how well he performed in 2020. It's just kind of funny on how 2020 works is that someone's bad, totally ignore it, doesn't count. Somebody was good, oh, it's totally going to continue into 2021. Now, I, I still feel like right field is, is an issue, and I, I'm with you, Jim, that, oh, and that's where it's just, it continues to be a little bit frustrating, and I understand that George Springer wants to play center field and George Springer is going to command five years, 125 million. But to go back to, I think the theme of Dr. Bo's question here, we've been told that the money will be spent. If the time is not now to spend that type of elite type of money to get an elite player like George Springer, when, and I think from a white Sox perspective, they have to grow these elite players sign them to team control deals <laughs> that are very team friendly, like they did with Jimenez and Robert and Mikata. And I'm sure that they would love to do with Lucas Giolito. And they continue to go with their path right now and how they're handling free agency and trades in which sure they can get players like Yasmani Grandal and Dallas Keuchel and maybe Liam Hendricks, but it's to like a four year deal. And nothing mm-hmm. more than $18 million a season. So they will continue to live in this mid-tier. And the mid-tier can work, but you got to own that mid-tier. 
And you got to sign multiple players in that mid-tier. You can't just sign one or two and that's it. Free agency is done because we that we we spend all of our money. <laughs> I mean, you also have to be good at finding your own players, which the White Sox haven't done. Like when it comes to the top prospect list, the top prospect list is still like top five draft picks and guys they traded for. And they haven't been able to supplement that with their own draft picks. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a really thin, uh, thin line to walk. And, uh, yeah, I was thinking about like the quintessential signing. I think that would almost be Steve Ciszek just because not only was he bad, but he was like the opposite of what they thought they were getting. Like they thought they were getting a, uh, a righty who got ground balls and, and retired righties and said they got a, a, a righty who got fly balls and was better against lefties. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Like the, uh, yeah, when you, like the White Sox, you know, thing going back to like Adam Dunn and Alex's Rios is like Alex Rios's first uh, half season with the team. Just like they have a history of just getting guys who forgot what they did. And yeah, so C-Sheck, I think, is the new model of that Adam Dunn signing where they come in and just completely resemble nothing like them, their previous selves. Well, well, that's why with Adam Eaton, it's important that you watch his walk rate. He walked with the White Sox 9 to 10%. When he was good with the Nationals in 2019, he walked. He did not walk in 2020. His walk rate was one of the lowest in his career, below 7%. So you think that you're getting someone that could be an on-base machine in a way, someone that can get on base at a 360 clip or better. Mm -hmm. But if he doesn't do that, then what did the White Sox sign, right? The White Sox are signing Adam Eaton, hoping that he could still be that type of hitter that gets on base at a 360 clip. And can still be effective, def- you know, defensively in right field, but if he's neither, and if he can't stay healthy, then what did you sign him for? And that's why we'll continue to have this conversation, and how we'll continue to always have these conversations. It seems like with the Chicago White Sox, with their hunt for trying to—I don't know if these are like lottery tickets, but just th- these one-year, two-year deals that they continue to sign. But. That's what you got to do when rounding out your roster and you only have a $135 million budget to work with. And uh, that budget's going to get really tight in a couple of years here uh, when these team-friendly deals that they signed with Jimenez, Robert, and Mikata start really picking up as far as in, in cost and how much that they are eating into the payroll and maybe why the White Sox are going to have to move on from Jose Abreu for sure in a couple of seasons and have Andrew Vaughn be the everyday first baseman to help keep costs low. But Dr. Bode, thank you so much for your question. Uh, Our next question that we have here comes from Andrew Siegel and Andrew's asking Jim, which outcome is most likely in 2021 and which outcome is most crucial to success in 2021? Adam Eden and Adam Engel formed a competent right field platoon. Ethan Katz is able to coax Dylan Cease along to fulfill his promise. Lucas Giolito experiences no significant drop-off in his post-James McCann career. I would say the most likely is Giolito experiencing no significant drop-off. Um, I, I don't. Just I think with the, the way his relationship with McCann was established before Grandall showed up, that everybody had a... You know, preconceived note, or at least I shouldn't say everybody, but just there there was a heavy preconceived notion that 
uh, Giolito had to throw to McCann, and then he had a bad opening day, and McCann's actually pretty good, so just like, I oh, may as well just keep with it. Like, there's no point in inviting controversy where controversy doesn't need to exist, so let's just have McCann catch him. And I think given some time and given that McCann is no longer an option, uh, they basically have to move on. And I think everybody will be happy to, and if McCann, if Giolito struggles... There's still only so much you can do because McCann signed for a lot of money. I think if McCann signed for maybe like three years and $20 million, you might hear some grumbling about 4 and 40 for a 1A job with New York team that's contending is pretty hard for him to turn down. I think the understanding, is, I think, will permeate even um, you know people who most believed in that connection being too special to ignore. Um, I think the most crucial one is Dylan Cease turning into what they think he can just because that allows for... Giolito to have a, a setback or or maybe regress a little bit or have an off year if Cease can step up and provide some depth. Also, you know, uh, reduces the number of roster positions the White Sox have to solve either in season or end of season. Um, and given that they haven't been developing prospects to trade away and they aren't going to be spending top of the line, basically seems like it's in his interest and uh, the White Sox interest to try to have him develop into what they think. And, you know, maybe that cease, you know, his, his erratic start to his career makes him an extension candidate and everybody's happy. I think that solves a lot of problems both now and in the future if cease can deliver. Um, whether that'll happen, I don't know, but uh, at least uh, I'm happier at least to entertain that notion with Ethan Katz being on board, not necessarily because Ethan Katz has the answers, but because Don Cooper didn't seem to and... At least they've changed that. It's a significant variable. They're changing, and so there's reason to believe that Cease can turn a corner, even if he isn't like Giolito-level good. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your question, and thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Socks. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle in a future episode of the podcast, you could always tweet them to us at Socks Machine or help support Socks Machine at patreon.com slash socks machine in which if we don't get to them on the podcast because again we're not on a regular schedule right now with the podcast being during the off season jim will answer them in written form for our patreon supporters on socksmachine.com so again go to patreon.com slash socks machine if you enjoy our work and you want to help support us and you want more content that's the place to do it. We have several different tiers of support that you could choose from. $2 a month gets you as far as all the additional contents with an ad-free podcast, the bonus PO socks questions, and the ability to ask questions to our guests in the podcast. And again, like I mentioned, also the ability to continue with the PO socks mailbag throughout the entire offseason. Again, that's at patreon.com slash socks machine. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I want to thank our guest again, Robert Murray of Fansided, for joining the show to share as far as some insight on some of the rumors that he is hearing around the Major League Baseball offseason, especially pertaining to the Chicago White Sox. And again, you can follow him on Twitter at by Robert Murray. I highly recommend it as he also broke some news that Chris Johnson, Jim, is going to be the new AAA hitting coach for the Chicago White Sox affiliate, the Charlotte Knights, as soon as that ordeal gets done. Uh, maybe Charlotte won't be the AAA affiliate. How about that for big news uh, this offseason, Jim, uh, with the way that 2020 is going? Yeah, I, I hope not. I, I, I really hope that uh, all the affiliates stay put because they're all great. 
They are all great. Yeah, the White Sox are lucky, especially in how the setup is, especially with the North Carolina setup with Winston-Salem, Kannapolis, and Charlotte. So hopefully everything works out. But Robert did break the story that Chris Johnson will be the AAA hitting coach for the Chicago White Sox AAA affiliate, which we are still hoping will be the Charlotte Knights. But again, that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. If you just discovered the show, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. And the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.